The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We're in Colossians 2 this morning. As we look to Colossians 2, what we find here is the, the Apostle Paul continuing to move from the general to the specific. He's moving through this letter. He's told us about the supremacy of Christ, middle of chapter 1. God, the Son, who made everything and then became part of the creation. He took on flesh, came to the earth so as to fix the brokenness to redeem the creation in general. And then specifically, from the general to the specific, and then specifically to redeem people. Those who were alienated from God under his right wrath, God in Christ crucified has provided a way for such people to be redeemed. By faith in Christ, we can be made blameless in God's sight. That's what God has done in sending Jesus, and then more specifically in sending Paul to proclaim that message, to to tell people about what God has done in Christ. Look at this at the end of chapter 1. This was last week. Paul is one specific messenger, one specific minister of this good news from God. And, And Paul suffers and sacrifices to see this message go out to the world and to see the church birthed and, and grown up, always enabled and empowered by God. That was at the very end of last week. But that's what Paul's doing. He's working and he's straining and he's suffering and he's laboring to present everyone that he can mature in Christ, which then, again, more specifically still, means that he says certain things to certain people according to what they need. That brings us to our our passage today, where for the first time, Paul specifically mentions that there is a problem in Colossae, the place where he's writing. We've known there was. He's been alluding to it in different ways. But for the first time now, he mentions, and there's some specific reason that I've written to you, you in this city and in in the neighboring region around it. They have a problem that's moved them to write. So he's finally getting down to something in particular that as, as God is working to redeem the world and to redeem people and using Paul specifically in this place for this thing, now he writes. But then at the same time, that's a general message to all of us. Because while they were specifically facing that in that place at that time, we can all identify with it. We can all know what it's like to have heard the message of Christ, to have embraced it, and then as time passes and life happens and difficult life happens and the honeymoon period of first coming to Christ, that also passes, shine wears off and we find ourselves wondering, how come I'm not nearly as excited about this as I used to be? How come I don't feel nearly as as emotionally moved by it. I don't feel as, as, as blessed. It's actually kind of difficult. What's the deal? And in that moment, not, not during the honeymoon, in, in that moment, right there, some clever adversary whispers into our ears, into our hearts, it's because you missed something. 
It's because there's something just a little bit more that you need. Something else. Not, not instead of, but something added in. Something a little more. Something that works a little better. Trust, trust this. Add, add this in. Lean on this. Hope in this. And then, then it will work. And then, that's what you're missing. Some, in that moment of vulnerability, some plausible alternative. False, but plausible. Some, some alternative is offered to us, and, and it's attractive. And, and they faced that, and we face that sort of thing. And Paul wants them to face it and to be able to face it down as well. So he's going to address it indirectly again, but he's going to address it by giving, more by giving the answer here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. That's what I'm going to read. I'm going to draw two observations from it. So let me read the passage, and, and we'll work our way through it. This is Colossians 2, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Two observations. Here's the first. All that is needed for life resides in Christ. All that is needed for life resides in Christ. And obviously, in saying that, I mean life in a certain way. I'm not talking about physical life. We all need food and water, of course. And, and furthermore, I'm not talking about life in the sense of what we might call human culture creation, for lack of a better term. We need math and physics and horticulture and linguistics and, 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 and. We need, we need all that. All that's important and valuable, and nothing about Christianity eliminates the need for that. Nothing about Christianity or, or, or having faith in Christ trumps that and makes that a secondary importance or sets it aside. We, we should honor all those aspects of, of culture creation, of, of life in that sense. We should honor all of that and how all that comes and see it as just aspects of God's common grace in the world. Nothing about being a Christian means... I have Jesus, and I don't need any of that. It's all worthless and unimportant. No, it, having it, pursuing it, whether a person is a Christian or not, is good and right and valuable, and we should honor that. What I'm trying to point out, though, is another type of life. The living of people within, while we pursue food and, and water and mathematics and linguistics and medicine and and build cultures. While all of that's going on, there's another life being lived, the life within, the life of the soul, spirit life. And I, I would argue that that's where we really live. That's what's most important, actually most important to all of us. 
What's going on in here? Life within. That's the kind of life I'm talking about. And what we need for that life resides in Christ, such that if we have Christ, we have what we need for life. And if we don't have Christ, try as we might, we don't have what we need. Can have all the food and drink in the world and we'll still hunger and thirst. Can have all the resources to put together a grand culture and a magnificent life and we'll still feel empty. We need soul satisfying abundance within, and that can only be found in relationship, in union with Christ. That's what we're made for. And that, that's. That's the point. That's the first point. We're going to look at how Paul unpacks this, but I want to make that clear here at the beginning because we look at this, it, gets, it can get a little confusing. So that's the point, and if, you, <laughs> if the rest of this is hard to follow, get that. But we're going to look at how Paul unpacks this. When we come to verse 1, we, we say here's, the, here's Paul continuing on from his previous section talking about laboring and ministry sufferings because he brings it up again in verse 1. He's been suffering and laboring for this church here. Though he's never met them, he's laboring for them in the sense of laboring for the whole church to be, to be grown up and matured. And he has heard about them from Epaphras, their, their local minister. So he's probably been laboring for them in prayer. And he's laboring for them as he writes to them now and attempts to minister to them. And what's the goal of, of the labors? Verses 2 and 3. Which is a typical sentence for Paul. Long, built with several phrases and lots of big, nearly redundant words. Paul is often an editor's nightmare. This is true. But he's not impossible to understand it just it just takes some work and it's worth work it's work worth doing because this is God's word to us and so it's it's worth us slowing down and looking at it but but it can be complicated so I'm going to try to take it through step by step but the basic point I've already given you so don't miss that but we're going to look at verses two and three and see what he has here in in order verse two I want there I want your Hearts to be encouraged, encouraged, being knit together in love. That's, that's a subordinate phrase. It's kind of off to the side of the main argument. We're going to come back to that later. We're going to stick with the main line of argument. So I'm setting that aside. I want your hearts to be encouraged, to reach. And then in the original language construction here, there are two parallel phrases. If you can look at my hands here, there are two parallel phrases. One of them which goes on a little bit further than the one before it, but it's saying basically the same thing. And then there's a third phrase, verse 3, which modifies something in, verse, in the second phrase. It's kind of like if I were to say to you, I want you to have a better diet, that is, to eat Balanced meals, which include fruits, vegetables, and protein. That's the structure of verses 2 and 3. So follow this through. We're going to work through it piece by piece. First piece, first phrase, he wants us to attain the riches. Riches. There is great benefit 
being offered here. Something that would enrich us, that we'd be prospered by. I want you to be encouraged by getting this abundant blessing, these riches that come from full assurance, which is a single word, one word, meaning complete certainty. Riches that come from full assurance, which comes from understanding, from getting it. So Paul envisions someone who says, ah, I get it. I see it. Yes. And, and saying, yes, I get it like that in a, in a certain way, fully assured of it. I, I don't just like wonder, maybe like see it a little bit like, is that or isn't it? No, yes, it is. And I get it and I grasp it and I'm certain of it. To have that kind of certainty of that knowledge would be riches. Would be a great blessing to you. That's what I want for you. Understanding, though, of what? Full, full assurance, certain understanding of what? That's the second phrase. That's the second phrase. Oh, how I want you to reach, and it's, it's the same sort of, I want you to reach the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I want you to understand, that is, I want you to get the knowledge of God's mystery. Remember, we talked about mystery last week. It came up in the previous passage. What's the mystery? God from eternity past had a hidden plan as to how he would intervene in this fallen world to redeem it. It was hidden in the past, revealed now, though, not just to one man or to some particular little little society of knowers, but to all of the church, it's been revealed. So it's a mystery in that sense. Hidden in the past, now revealed. Put it in a word, Christ. Christ. God who made everything. God come in flesh. God in flesh crucified for sin and now raised and reigning to give life to people who can't get it themselves, don't deserve it, can't produce it, can't find it, God gives it. It's God's mystery, his plan of salvation, his plan to redeem in Christ. To get that, to get the knowledge of that, to understand that, who he is and what he's about and what he's done. That's, that's the whole deal, to get Christ. Which is important, finally, not just because Christ is the only way to be forgiven and saved. He is, and that's of great importance, a huge part of this. But more, we must understand Christ because by Christ... We understand everything else. Verse 3 puts it this way. In Christ, the mystery is Christ, in whom, here's the third modifying phrase, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When a person understands Christ, not just intellectually understands, but says, I get it, I see him. 
and with certainty grabs hold of them. When a person understands Christ and becomes a Christian, they, you, are therefore now in Christ. Remember this real simple way we've been talking about that in past weeks and months about a balloon and air inside the balloon. You've got a balloon and to be in the balloon like air is in the balloon. To be in Christ means you're included in him. And guess what this verse is saying? Guess what else is in the balloon? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the blessings that would make a person wise. Biblically speaking, to be wise is not just to be smart. It's to know what's going on and to be able to live in the world in light of what's true, in light of who God is, and in light of what's coming. That's in the balloon with you, but really if we keep thinking about that, it's not just something that's out there that you bump into. We're in Christ, but then also as we just saw, Christ is in us. That was in the previous passage. That stuff comes into you and remakes you new. You're not just standing next to what makes a person wise. You are made wise. To know Christ, to have Christ, is, is to, to be next to, actually to become like Christ, to become wise, to have insight into the world, which is not to say that we become omniscient, not to say that we, that we know everything about everything, but it's to say that we understand what's going on. We understand our hearts, and we understand the hearts of other people. We, under, we understand this place, in, not completely, but, but truly so. We, we see it. You, you, it's kind of like you have a, a secret decoder ring in, in your pocket by which you can understand C.S. Lewis wrote this. I believe, this is Lewis writing, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. He could have been talking about this passage. I can see the sun, but also I know the sun's up because I can see everything else. I couldn't see before, now I can that, that's the place where we stand in Christ. I can see. I get it. Oh, I get me. I get you. I get the world. I get it. Ah. This mystery, Christ, Christian faith, reveals and explains and makes sense of everything else. Consistent sense. Humble sense. It makes one wise and it makes us whole. It heals what's actually broken in us, confused in us, dark in us. It brings light and makes us Christ-like wise, which provides for sober and real hope. I'm being made new. I am. I get it. I see where this is going. So the person who knows Christ then has a great treasure. 
riches. Treasure for life living. Treasure that enables me to walk through life in pursuit of mathematics and physics and linguistics and food and water, etc. To walk through life, whatever happens, whether that's successful or tragic, to walk through life in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In other words, having real life in the midst of all that life. Because I know Christ and Christ is mine and I know who I am and I know what he's doing in me and I know where this is all going and I know that, that he holds me in his hand and all of this is for my good and he will never leave me nor forsake me. I know that. I see it with certainty. That is a rich blessing. Martin Lloyd-Jones contested that was the single greatest need of every Christian. To know that with certainty. To know that he is mine, that I am his, that he has me and holds me and is taking me clear through all the way home into glory. But in saying all of that, so many of those sentences, I use the word know and see and get and understand. And, and Paul uses words like insight and knowledge. We, we have to begin to move to the second point here. We, we have to acknowledge something here that there's, there's a potential that we think of this only as factoid. Stuff and paper. Please don't miss this. That, don't, that's not what he means. When he talks about with, with full assurance, with certainty, he, he doesn't just mean, I really know this is the answer. He means, I really know this one, this person. And I'm resting my heart in him with total confidence. I am all feet on Christ. Not just testing him a little bit. To rest in Christ. Maybe that's a different way of, of talking about the words know and understand and be certain of. To, to rest full weight on him. To hope in him. That's what's needed. To know him in that way. And that's what moves us on to the second observation. The church is protected as together it rests assured in Christ. The church is protected as together it rests assured in Christ. So we trace through verses 2 and 3, and we look at every word, every little phrase there, and we, and we understand that what Paul's getting at is what we need is in Christ. Okay. That's how he thinks about encouraging believers, which we note carefully because we could misunderstand encouragement because we tend to think of encouragement as positive talk, as compliment, You look so good. You, you, are, you got this. You can do it. You're so kind and sweet and generous. That's encouragement. And there's nothing wrong with that, per se. 
It's just not what he means here. And if we only think like that, we might miss something here. To be encouraged, a person who is encouraged has courage put into him or her. Has courage, has heart strength, resolve put into the person. That's the person who's encouraged, has been given resolve to do something difficult, to face something hard. And what's the difficult thing before them here? What's the challenge? We, we face it too. It's in verse 4. I say this, what he was just saying, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The, the danger, the threat the church is facing is clever, persuasive, reasonable, plausible, falsehood. that is suggesting that we need something else, something more for life. And that's what he knows this church, all Christians, we, we need to face and, and face down so that we remain like, like he wants us to, like God wants us to, as verse 5 describes us, orderly and firm in faith. It's language taken from a military context. If you think about like old-time military units, in a line, shoulder to shoulder, not wavering, orderly. That's what's safe and secure and strong is, is order and firmness. And when you see an old-time military unit beginning to do sort of this and turning around and what, they're about to disintegrate. I want to see you orderly and firm, resisting plausible arguments. And so I want to put strength into you to help you. I'm going to encourage you. Does he want to encourage them to? Well, what he just said. To know, that is, to rest in Christ. To know it with certainty. To know him clearly. To grasp him firmly. To think about rest in Christ. Think of to turn to, to stand on, to hope in, to find confidence in, to surrender to, to be hopeful because of. Think of a different example. We, we sometimes rest in the money in our bank account when, when a big bill comes along unexpectedly and we think, oh, okay, I've got the money to cover that. The, uh, that uh, came because I looked at my bank account and I said, okay, it's going to be okay. I can rest in the number on the line. Resting in it. He means for us in life to rest in Jesus, to know with certainty he has me, I'm his, it's going to be okay. That, that's, that's the need in face of a hostile enemy that's advancing against us to think, no, no, what they're offering is wrong. I stand against it. And that is best done in community with others, shoulder to shoulder, which is why the phrase we skipped earlier in verse 2. Glance back at that. He said, I want you to be encouraged, strengthened, being knit together in love. It's, it's off to the side. It's not, not the main point, but it's off to the side because it's really important. 
He adds that in because that's the, that's the type of community that he knows must be. That, that's the kind of thing we have to have if we're going to actually resist. It, it, is, it is not possible to talk about I'm going to stand, I by myself, I'm going to stand against this argument, this, this offer, this plausible presentation, me by myself. A community of loving unity is actually what we need. And if, if you kind of like, if you look at that from the side and, and kind of think, who do I know? Maybe myself. What time in my life have I found myself drawn away to plausible arguments, drawn away to alternative offers, inevitably you were by yourself. This, this kind of unified, this unity, love, is the community that both protects us, it, it, it helps us because it helps us be exposed to truth regularly and helps expose what's false. When I check things. Sometimes I find myself, when I, when I just say something out loud around other people, I kind of think, that's not going to fly. That's ridiculous. But it was flying in here. Made sense in here. Until I spoke it to the people with whom I am knit together in love, and I realized, I can't argue for that. That's wrong. The loving community helped me. But it also... It also helps protect us in another way, in that it's, it's the water, it's the atmosphere that actually testifies to the truth of Jesus. Because unity and love are things that are particularly Christ-like. When he produces that around us, when he produces a people who would otherwise perhaps not be so unified, and otherwise perhaps not be so characterized by love, when he produces that in us, there's a, there's a testimony to there, there and that that's what Jesus is like. There's truth here in this, huh? We have to speak the truth to one another together. Everything around us has an alternative offer, even some things within our own hearts, have an alternative offer being presented to us, aiming to convince us in plausible ways you actually need a little bit more. It's worth noting that Paul doesn't actually outline the plausible arguments that they're being faced with. Partially because they could be endless. But maybe it's worth thinking for just a second. So ask yourself, what's tempting to me? When, when I think about, if I, if I were to answer the question, when I'm inclined to turn from, to, to deviate from this kind of, of, of resting in Jesus, what, what am I inclined to turn to? What, what am I, maybe another way, what am I inclined to say, I need that? If I only had then, oh, then it'd be good. Or what do you feel frustrated and flustered by when you don't have? 
Someone once said, what are you willing to sin so as to get? Well, nothing, of course. Yeah, you are. Look, what, what do you sin so as to get? That might be what you think you need for life. That might be the, the plausible argument that's, put it, that's, that's drawing you away, that's, that's out there, and it's, and it's everywhere. It, it could be anything. Particular goods. I think I need this kind of a car and this kind of a house and this kind of a, of, of a, of a wardrobe or relationships. I need these kinds of friends, and I, I, need a, I must have significant other. I, I must have children. I must have or experiences in life. I must travel. I must see the world. I, I must be significant in my workplace. It can be anything. And what's plausible about it is a lot of those things are good. Just they take a place that they shouldn't take. They become what I think I need for life. They're, they're good to have. They're fine to pursue. Resting in Christ. Give, give some thought. What draws you? What, what, what whispers in your ear when you get frustrated and disappointed and you feel like, I need that? Look at that. That's, that's the subtle, plausible argument being offered to you, and the answer is not there. It's in Christ. But we should probably consider not just what's out there, but also what's in here. Because probably what the Colossians were being offered was something religious. Something additional, something subtly different in, in a spiritual worship realm. So while we should attend to the things from the world that draw us on, we should also attend to what's inside the building that maybe wants to pull us away from Christ. And that's tricky. Ironically, it's pretty easy for a church to attempt to create, verse 5, good order and firmness of faith, or at least the appearance of good order and firmness in faith. To attempt to create that ironically, by encouraging people in the church to rest in something other than Christ. Maybe we use lots of truth and doctrine and theology and Bible knowledge. Saying, maybe not out loud on purpose, but saying, if we teach this and if we know that and give assent to these things, that's what makes us good and okay. That's where my life is found. That's what protects me from error. Ironically, what I'm saying is that the written word itself can take the place of Christ. As we trust in the truth, knowing the truth, and obeying the truth, What's wrong with knowing and obeying the truth? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. I, I, hope that, I hope it's clear that I think that's a good idea. That we should know, we should trust, we should obey the truth. But the problem is that sometimes we can actually offer that up instead of Jesus himself. 
this is, this is odd. We can trust in following the principles, knowing the truth and, and fixing our, our problems and getting ourselves ordered just right, and Jesus can be assumed. There's no life in the ink on the page. There's life in God. And, and God's Spirit wants to use the ink, and use, use the word for sure, but it's God. God the Spirit alive inside of me. Jesus himself relating to me, not principles. Jesus is what, is who gives life. So we, need, we need to attend to that. The, even the written word can step in, but also unwritten codes of contact, things we do and, and, and don't do. We don't drink and we don't swear and we don't wear a mask clothes and we go to Bible study and we attend church and we smile. We vote for the correct candidates and we oppose the wrong candidates. We raise kids in a certain way. We send them to certain schools and universities. That's how we keep ourselves from being deceived by falsehoods and worldly arguments. That's how we keep ourselves on the straight and narrow. Follow that? If I read my Bible, and if I go to church, and if I wear the right clothes, and if I send my kids to a Christian school and to a Christian university, and we keep all the secular music out of our house, then we'll be protected from the deceptive arguments of the world. And we're surprised when that doesn't work. I was, I was in campus ministry for a long time before becoming a pastor. And I, a disappointing story didn't happen to me. It happened to a friend of mine. But I, I knew the people involved. A student leader who had been one of those model students, you know, just one of those model students. He'd been involved in all the Bible studies. He'd done all the evangelism outreach things. He'd, he'd led other people to faith. He'd, he'd done this and that, and he, he taught things, and he knew things. And one day he came to my friend with a box with all of his awesome theological books. I said, here, I don't need this anymore. And he gave it to my friend. And you, we, you, know, you look through the box and say, oh, that's a great book. Oh, that's a, that's a brilliant thing. That's, ooh, I don't need this anymore because I'm done. It was heartbreaking. But in the postmortem, we worked through that and tried to figure out what happened there talk to him. What, what happened? Something like I sought life in the Bible study, in the witnessing, in the books and the theology, in, in the doctrine, in the singing, in the teaching, I sought life in the Christian water. And he missed resting in Jesus. 
that, that Christian water is fine and good if you swim in it in Christ, resting in Jesus. Which means that you see Jesus and his person and you talk to him as if he's sitting right there because he is. Not physically, but he's here, present. And you put you in front of him and you say, help me. So I'm reading one of the Psalms this morning. Have mercy on me, it begins in the Psalm, then ends with destroy all the enemies of my heart within me talking to God. You, you talk to Jesus like that. Show me yourself, not just the truth of the doctrine about you. Show me you. We go to him personally. We, we commune with him. And we read the word to see Jesus. We talk to him to, to talk to him we cry out for his spirit to run through us and to have his way in us and to move us to follow after him. But your spirit must move me. Apart from you, I am disordered and darkened in my understanding, a beast in the world, foolish. That's what the scripture says about me. But you, in such kindness, in such kindness, you have given me life. You've changed me and renewed me and you walk with me and carry me. Help me to see you for you. That's who we need. And when you with great assurance have that one, certain of him, not of the truth about him, certain of him, when you have that one riches to you because your life flows like streams of living water. You don't thirst anymore because the water's coming out of you. Life in you. This is Paul's hope for the church, and this is the antidote to everything else it offers, 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 but can't deliver that. We could spend forever, and sometimes there's usefulness in in, in refuting and analyzing and, and looking at it and, and explaining why this doesn't and why that won't and why this isn't. But he is, and he does, and he will. When you're groping around in a dark, dark room, and there's no light, and you're talking to your friends, hey, where's the couch? Where's the couch? I can't find the couch. When you find it and you sit down on it, you know where the couch is. And you stop looking. Rest in Christ, church. We find him in the word for certain. We find him in a community that is knit together in love for certain. We need the word and we need his people. But we need his word and his people so that we can get him personally. Your hope and your joy in his presence, there is fullness of joy at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. He saved us. He put us in him and puts in us all that we need for life to see and to understand, to know who we are and who he is. And then by his spirit, he gives us the ability to drink all of that and thirst no more. Church, pursue him.
pursue him together and find life. Let me pray. Lord, help. Have mercy on us, a, a people who are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the one we love. But here's our heart, Lord. Take it. Claim it. Seal it. Bind us up with you, in you. Give us help to rest in you. Make us attentive, make us alert if there are things that are luring us on from the world or even from within the Christian practice, from within the Christian circle, that ironically would replace you. Make us aware of that. And draw near and meet us. turn to communion now, which is a, a unique time for that very thing. So would you now meet us here over these elements? We have just considered the word preach, and now we consider the word broken, the bread and the cup. Meet us now in, the, in these tangible elements that we take in our hands it's just, if you don't, Lord, draw near, it's just juice and bread. Like it's just words, ink on a page. We need to meet you in the word and you now in the cup and in the bread. And so, Spirit of God, draw near, please. Commune with your people as we commune with you and with each other. Thank you, Lord. We trust ourselves to you now and ask you to continue to abide with us and teach and shape and grow and, and love us and help us. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.